some of my friends in my small town, they got really mixed up with some drugs. And there was a new kid who moved to our town. Nobody really knew him, but he played football. He seemed nice enough. It's so hard to talk about. He had some of my friends. They were kind of like getting after this guy who they believed stole drugs from them. And he just said they were going to beat him up. And they didn't. He actually ended up killing him. And so seeing people I knew end up in jail was pretty jarring and a very loud message that I was clearly on the wrong path. So that happened and I decided, well, I'm gonna stop using the substances that gotten my friends in so much trouble. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and today's guest is Autumn Smith. Autumn is the co-founder of Paleo Valley and Wild Pastures. She holds a master's in holistic nutrition. She's a certified eating psychology coach and a certified FDN practitioner. Autumn's passion for health began with her own struggles with IBS and anxiety, and despite having a career as a professional dancer and celebrity fitness trainer, her own health was in shambles. Desperate for a cure, Autumn and her husband Chaz stumbled upon the paleo diet in 2011, and within a month of beginning it, her health was completely transformed. In today's episode, Autumn shares her personal story and reveals how being bullied during her childhood and having unhealthy eating habits fueled her struggles with IBS, addiction, and anxiety, leading to her being kicked out of her house when she was 18 years old. She shares the steps she took to completely transform her life, heal from her past, and unlearn toxic patterns. Autumn shares how working for Tracy Anderson as a celebrity trainer and touring with Jennifer Lopez inspired her to start Paleo Valley. We also discuss the highly debated topic of regenerative farming and which animal products you should try to buy grass-fed. We also talk about how to realistically make healthier food choices, parenting tips for kids to do the same, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Autumn Smith to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Autumn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. I'm so honored and excited to be here. I'm honored to have you. As you know, I'm a big fan of Paleo Valley. I'm a big fan of Wild Pastures, and we're certainly going to talk a bit about that a little later in our conversation. But the reason I wanted to have you on here is because you have an incredible story. I know when you were younger, you struggled a lot with your mental health. You struggled with an eating disorder. You struggled with addiction. You struggled with IBS and gut issues. I want to go back to the beginning of all of this. Like, what was childhood like? What was school like? What was your family dynamic like? And how did all of this like impact your mental health and then contribute towards this path of addiction and destructive behavior? It's interesting. Yes. And I actually had a great family. I am still so close to my mom and my dad. I speak with them daily. We do have a family history of some trauma and mental health issues that I think definitely contributed. And I think I had a great childhood, but I didn't really understand that how I was living and what I was putting into my body was contributing to some detrimental effects in my physiology. But on top of that, I was very much someone who was different, right? I just, I'm a little more sensitive. I was an artist. I was a ballerina. I was, I stuck out a little bit 
in a small town and a lot of the people around me didn't the girls specifically I was bullied a lot as I got into middle school I remember it so vividly because in my small town there's actually something called initiation just like you see on the movie like dazed and confused right they pick you up and they make you do these crazy things but in my town in Montana this was really out of control and in fact a few years later they actually beat a freshman an incoming freshman so bad that it made the national news and I think they've kind of put a damper on it. But when I was growing up, the minute I got into seventh and eighth grade, these girls who were juniors and seniors, they had me on a list. They were just waiting for me and they made my life really horrible. They would make me push a penny down like a carpet and then kick me. And so you'd get scabs. They would write things on my face. They would call me names. They made me wear a diaper and walked me down the main street on a leash. And so it was me in this bullying environment and I didn't know what to do. This just seemed like a normal thing. And there was another, another option. I couldn't go to a different school because this was the only school in my town. And so I think that combined with me not taking care of myself, I also at the same time was involved in ballet and I got the terrible advice <laughs> that I should eat lettuce and that I should smoke cigarettes and that just maintaining your weight was kind of like the most important thing in terms of becoming a great dancer and exceptional ballerina. And so my malnourishment coupled with this kind of abusive environment in the schooling system and, and just in our community, it kind of just all came together to create, yeah, like um, eating disorder and digestive issues. And the addiction came later. That came later after I tried therapy. We tried psychiatric medications. We went to our, you know, regular doctor with about the irritable bowel syndrome and they they no one really could offer solutions psychiatric meds work for some but they made me feel terrible i had brain zaps and and so it wasn't until we had gone through a number of these channels and i was still stuck feeling horrible i was passing out sometimes in school i think that was stress related and again not getting enough sleep and finally when i just resulted to the fact that i was broken I started to manage that anxiety with any substance I could get my hands on. I was really, literally terrified to go to school every day and smoking, using marijuana, whatever, yeah, whatever I could find. And honestly, I did get involved in a group of friends that were on the rougher side. <laughs> I think I was looking for a sort of protection from the people who were being really mean to me, and I thought that they offered that. And some of my friends did end up getting in a lot of trouble and... In the end of the day, that experience sent me on another path. But yes, childhood, parents, lovely people, did everything they could. They did not limit any resources. They were always there by my side. But my community and my perception of my place in that community, as well as my disordered eating as a youngster, all kind of culminated in a rather tumultuous story where my parents actually <laughs> kicked me out of my house before I even graduated high school, which I absolutely deserved. And in hindsight, I'm grateful for, but it was hard at the time. Thanks for sharing all that. And I'm really sorry to hear that you, you went through all that. And it seems though, despite that massive amount of adversity you went through as a kid, it like shaped you into who you are today. And it's really motivated you to build what you've built. I want to go back a bit 
and talk a bit about like the bullying. And you mentioned that it was hard for you to go to school. You mentioned that, you know, these kids would abuse you when you went to school. Like what types of feelings did these create for you? Like how were you feeling like when you were going to school and you were experiencing stuff like this? Yeah, it's so funny. And I want to say too that my sister her perception of my place and acceptance in our high school and community is very different than mine. She saw me as someone who people really liked, but I, there were a few girls who were older than me who were really dead set on me just not doing well. They would write, you know, terrible things about me and spread rumors. And it really made me feel horrible about myself. I just started to feel kind of worthless, broken, not good enough, unworthy. And I think it's just terrified, right? I literally girls would threaten, like they'd say, meet me at the ring after school. And this was a thing in our community, like girls would fist fight. And so I just was straight up terrified most of the time when I went to school, but also felt very out of place, very much like I didn't belong and very much like I was unworthy. Yeah, and thanks again like, for opening up and sharing that. I'm sure it must have been incredibly challenging like as a kid to go through all that when, you know, you haven't matured yet and you've also are thinking to yourself like why is all this happening to me and it's not happening to other kids or not happening to other friends. You mentioned that you have a great relationship with your family and that you had a great relationship with your family growing up, but you also said that they ended up kicking you out of their house and then you said you you rightfully deserved how did this all impact your relationship with your parents and what was your behavior like at home? And then like, why did they eventually end up kicking you out? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I kept sneaking out. I did. I remember the night really well. My mom said, you're going to come home by 11. And I said, I'm not. And she said, well, if you're not, then you're going to pack your stuff. And I said, I was 18 at the time. So I was someone who turned 18 at the beginning of my senior year. And so when I came home at four, she met me at the door and she said, I meant what I said, and it's time for you to get out. And I said, okay. And I did. And at that time, relations were obviously strained. I moved a few miles away with another friend of mine. My father would come pick me up and he'd take me to get groceries every weekend. I still talk to my mom, you know, but she is that tough love. Like she is committed to my highest good. And she knew I needed to learn a lesson. And so it was a painful process. But yeah, I literally talked to her daily and I'm just grateful. I think for me at that time, I couldn't see the bigger picture. I was so stuck in these cycles of stress and that I just was behaving erratically and something did have to change. And she had been through a lot of challenges with her sister who was bipolar. And so she was kind of ready to meet, you know, me where I was at. And she did what she thought she had to do. And I respect her for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes parents in that situations, they do the best they can with the tools that they have. Right. And, you know, a lot of times those outcomes don't align with what the, the kid wants, but it's like, that's all that the parent knows. And the parents just like, listen, like, I don't know what else I can do in the situation other than do this thing. Like I've tried everything else. Did you communicate with your parents at all about what was going on at school? Like, did they know that you were going through such a hard time? No, I don't think they did. I didn't know it was abnormal. I just knew, I don't know, I seemed to be getting picked on more than other people. But also, like I said, there was this perception, like I was named class sweetheart. I was in homecoming royalty. So it looked like, okay, this chick is, she's crazy. Like, cause everyone, you know, she's very well accepted, but it was just a few very scary individuals who still made my experience terrible. And like I said, there wasn't really an alternative cause I, there was no other school. 
And so it was a very small 3,000 person community. So I, yeah, I wish I had communicated. I just, I didn't adequately. I couldn't articulate it. I, I don't think I understood myself well enough at that point to really understand why I was behaving the way I was. Yeah, it's super hard as a kid to be able to communicate with your parents like in a way that you feel confident and that you feel like they're going to be able to understand like where you're coming from. Because again, like there's not only an age difference, there's a generational difference sometimes. And it's just like, it's hard for somebody to understand what you're going through unless like you're walking along that path with them on a daily basis. You talked about having digestive issues because of how you ate and the foods you put into your body. I know there's a lot of kids that eat processed foods growing up. I feel like you know, sometimes as health professionals, we don't like to say this, it sometimes can be just part of being a kid, right? And along those lines, like we know a lot about the gut brain axis and how gut health can impact your brain health and vice versa. So do you think that you would have escaped some of these gut health issues had your childhood not been so stressful? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. So I showed promise for ballet for a very young age, right? And so I got the message that I needed to pay attention to my weight. And then I was traveling three hours a day or a weekend to study with someone from the Bolshoi and all of these younger ballerinas. And so I was in the mirror looking at these underdeveloped or like more immature bodies than my own, right? They were a different age. So I think that was the main stressor because my digestive issues started around, you know, 10 or 11 or 12. Yeah, I think if I had more tools and I knew how to articulate what I was feeling, was just more connected to my body. I probably could have, I probably could have. But I think if I really look back at the life my mom led and my parents, they didn't weren't able to have that too. There was stress in their own environments. And so, yeah, I think that they provided a beautiful home for me, but maybe didn't have those tools themselves to share. And now you've come out on the other side of this, and we're definitely going to talk about the in-between of you know you at school and what you're doing now, but now you're also a parent, and mm -hmm. you have kids, and there's a lot of parents that listen to my show, and, and parents, they have a hard time sometimes like getting their kids to eat healthy. Sometimes it can be, they have a hard time being like, all right, am I being too hard on them? Am I not being hard enough on them? Like, Where's the balance in all this? Because like, I mean, I think if you're too hard on them, it seems like it can create some disordered eating patterns. If you're not hard enough on them, then you really don't model how to, to eat healthy. Like, what have you found to be successful for your own kids? Yeah, and this has been such trial and error, absolutely. So yeah, we just try and teach there's no morality around food, right? Eating certain foods doesn't make you a good person. Eating certain foods doesn't make you a bad person. This has nothing to do with that, but there are outcomes, right? You can expect certain things when you eat healthful foods, right? Whole foods, you're going to feel better. You're going to feel more balanced. You're going to have more energy. And you can also expect the opposite. If you're going to make the decision to eat processed foods, you're probably going to have less energy. You're going to have energy dips. You're just not going to feel, look, and perform as well. And so how we manage that is we bring foods that we want him to consume into the home. And then for when we want to prioritize pleasure and go out and have the foods that might be processed or otherwise that we simply enjoy, we do that on a Friday. We call it Fun Food Friday. <laughs> we all go out and we eat whatever we want. And he has shown some symptoms to things like gluten. And so we're always, it's constantly a trial and error, right? Because he feels so sad about being left out and being one of the only kids in his class that doesn't eat gluten. And so we've tried testing and we've brought it in. His symptoms will reemerge and we go. And he can have it now at birthday parties, right? Because I bring in the enzymes and, but he's learning, okay, 
when I do this, I have gluten, then I can expect this. And it's just that cause and effect. I think we just focus on the, the cause and effect and the lack of morality and just do the best we can. But it's it's a forever, you know, self-correcting process, right? We're always <laughs> learning and changing our approach a little bit. Have you found any strategies other than just kind of having these open conversations about like morality and just because you eat in a certain way doesn't necessarily make you a good and bad person to be able to, to get kids to have some buy-in when it comes to like eating healthy? Because I think a lot of times, you know, you hear kids like, all right, mom, I'll, like our dad or whatever, like I'll eat my vegetables so I can like play video games or whatever it is. Like, have you found anything that's helped with that with your son? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Paleo Valley. I have been a big fan of their products for a while now, and lately I have been addicted to their chocolate bone broth protein. It's decadent, tasty, and a great addition to my smoothie. You hear a lot about the many health benefits of bone broth, and it's commonly referred to as a superfood. With that said, some people don't like the taste of bone broth or are confused about which to buy. Paleo Valley has solved this problem for you. Their bone broth protein is made with 100% grass-fed and finished bones that are free from pesticides or antibiotics, and are slow simmered to extract as much collagen protein as possible. You can add it to smoothies like I do, or it makes a great addition to baked dishes, your coffee, or mix with hot water and a little pepper for a filling, collagen-loaded afternoon treat. So if you'd like to join me in drinking the bone broth protein from Paleo Valley, go to www.paleovalley.com, and when you enter in the code DUG at checkout, you will get 15% off. Again, it's paleovalley.com, and when you enter in the code DUG at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, we call them like strong foods and we just talk about the outcomes, right? And I share my experience. Just like, oh buddy, I know. It doesn't feel good to be the only kid not having a Dorito. He told me that the other day. It's so unfair. I don't even try, I've never tried a Dorito. And I just say, I live this experience, right? That I didn't feel well and I didn't know how to fix it. And now I've learned that we can fix it with you, right? We get to choose and you can build health and you can be strong and we call it ninja juice. You know, we try and make it as fun as possible and as accessible as possible. We teach him about blueberries and the brain. We teach him about, you know, walnuts in the brain or we say, you know, fermented foods. He has to take a spoonful every day. They're gonna build your microbiome. We read in the book, Buddies in My Belly. If you haven't heard of that and you're a parent, I highly recommend it. it really makes the microbiome and the science around it very, very accessible for kids. And so we just, and we model it, right? We're not asking him to do anything that we're not doing ourselves. And so I think those are just the most practical strategies I have. That's awesome. And so like what age did you begin to talk to him about all this? I mean, I'm sure you weren't talking to him about it when he was like, you know, six months <laughs> old. Like what age did he get to where you were having these conversations with him? <laughs> I'd say they started where he was really grasping it, maybe around four. And okay. he's he's about eight now. And so most of the time, admittedly, he's pretty annoyed with me. But also I do see there are moments where he chooses to eat the healthy and he seems really excited about it. But we also know that as he gets older, he's going to need a little more autonomy. And so we're going to let him have, you know, have one fun food a day or whatever. You get a little choice and because we're not we can't, you know, keep our hands and eyes on him at all periods of his life. And so we will start to kind of open things up a little bit and just try and increase that education as we go along too. And I'm sure a lot of it is just observation and adjusting along the way and seeing like, okay, is he having certain feelings about himself because of, you know, what he's eating and then how and adjusting accordingly, or is he like opening up and sharing things, or maybe you're learning something else that you can adjust? Because I think that's probably 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that's probably like gonna be the most important thing when it comes to raising kids who are eating healthy to make sure that they're not gonna end up growing up and being too hard on themselves or being perfectionist and stuff like that. Absolutely. And that's, yeah, we absolutely try and instill that. Like there's never going to be a time when you're perfect and you're always going to make, you know, mistakes. And sometimes I'm going to choose to eat something that isn't in alignment with my best self. And that's fine. That's just life. So yeah, absolutely. Making sure that (laughs) there's no expectation on me for him, you know, to be perfect. We talk about that a lot, probably every week. Yeah. And we're going to get back to talking about how people can transition from eating processed foods to, you know, eating healthier and talking about some strategies around that. But I first want to go back to your story. I want to talk about like, so now you're graduating high school, you've been, you know, kicked out of your house and you're still like on this path of destruction. Where does that lead you? And then how did you end up you know, on this path of destruction, finding something like fitness and becoming a celebrity trainer. Yeah, there's a lot of pieces there, right? Okay, so in high school, I got kicked out. I was living on my own. Some of my friends in my small town, they got really mixed up with some drugs. And there was a new kid who moved to our town. Nobody really knew him, but he played football. Seemed nice enough. It's so hard to talk about. He had some of my friends. They were kind of like getting after this guy who they believed stole drugs from them. And he just said they were going to beat him up and they didn't. He actually ended up killing him. And so seeing people I knew end up in jail was pretty jarring and a very loud message that I was clearly on the wrong path. So that happened and I decided, well, I'm going to stop using the substances that got in my friends in so much trouble. And so I went to college and studied dance. I kept that love of dance and as I was about to go to the University of North Texas for a play therapy doctorate, <laughs> my one of my best friends said, you gotta dance, like if this is your time, if you're gonna be a dancer, it has to be now. And so we moved to LA instead. And I did dancing for a while and that was fun, but it didn't pay very well, it was pretty unpredictable. And so I got scooped up by Tracy Anderson, who you know held a dance audition, just like any other dance audition I would have gone to, but she was, I didn't even realize it, but she was a celebrity fitness trainer. And so I made the audition and I remember going to work the first day and they said, oh, you're gonna go to Courtney's house. You're gonna go to Malibu and go to Courtney's house. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I had my little program. And when I get there, it's Courtney Cox. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, this is Courtney, all right, cool. And so then she just, you know, she has a number of celebrity clientele and I worked really hard for her. I love that company. For about four years, she sent me on a world tour with JLo. It was just, yeah, the total antithesis of (laughs) what I was doing and where it looked like I was headed prior to my awakening, I call it, like the end of my high school. But yeah, and then I met Chaz, my husband, in LA too, and he was a very grounding force. And when he really said, we're going to take the time to look at how to make you feel better, that was kind of the last little piece I needed because I was still a little bit in survival mode and doing really cool things, but still maybe not operating from a optimal kind of place of peace. And, and so, yeah, so it was all of those events had to happen before. And so taking a step back and going back to graduating high school, you mentioned you went to college, got your degree in dance. I think I've heard you say that from like ages like 18 to 24 or something, you still smoked, I guess, cigarettes and drank alcohol. How did all that like impact your health? And then like, what was that like working for Tracy Anderson? Were you working for Tracy at that time when you were still doing all that stuff? 
Oh, that's a great question. So I did start smoking in high school because when I was training with the Bolshoi, they were, they would literally smoke cigarettes during our ballet rehearsals. Anyway, bad habit. And then as I went to college, my parents got divorced and uh, I'd always been a bit of a, like a binge drinker, right? Like I just didn't really know when to turn it off. And then when I moved to Los Angeles away from my family, and then that was kind of deteriorating or what I had known of it at that time, I did start drinking heavily. And I was drinking definitely when I worked for Tracy, but fortunately before Tracy, I actually did a yoga teacher training and smoking in yoga became very incompatible. <laughs> and so that really helped me cross that bridge and be like, I'm not gonna show up to the yoga studio and smoke. And so I worked through that. And then the drinking kind of just kept going until you know I started to not feel good, right? When I would show up for the sessions in the first year of working for Tracy Anderson, I was like, I'm just not doing my best and this, this job matters and my clients deserve better than this. And so I did end up just kind of like, it trailed off just slowly. And today you can barely get me to drink. My family's like, can you please drink? Like, just have a drink. Like, it's just, it's, it's not something I wanna do anymore, but it was definitely impacting me from like 18 to 24. For sure, the drinking, the smoking dropped off. Actually, probably about 25. Gotcha, gotcha. So I can imagine that, you know, between the smoking, the drinking, all the trauma that you endured as a kid, your parents get divorced, like all this stuff is, has happened to you. And then on top of all that, like you're eating, you know, highly processed foods. And it's just like, it seems like your health at this point is a recipe for disaster. What was the breaking point for you? You mentioned, you know, I've heard you talk about this conversation that, that your husband had with you. What was going on in your life at the time? How old were you? And then like, what was the first step you took to make some sort of massive change? I've never talked about this on podcast either, but I suppose I was around 24. That's when I met my husband. And he's such a gentle, careful soul. It was like, he never berated me or said, wow, like you really need to change. He showed me, he used to videotape me when I'd get really out of control. And then he'd share it. He would just say, oh, you know, like, this is what you look like. This is the things you were saying. And soon enough, I realized that's not that cool. Like, that's awful. I'm not a good person. And I started to realize I had this beautiful, amazing husband and I was creating conflict. Just the way I was living, I was out of control. We would fight. It just was completely unnecessary. And so it was just kind of within that foundation of just like peace and kind of curiosity that he brought that was able for me to look at myself rather than having someone like shake a finger at me. It really made me, his patience and love and stuff made me want to look and just do better for him in our relationship. So that was kind of the catalyst. Mm. And so digging into that, like you grew up with a lot of conflict in your life, not necessarily at home, but at school, there was, you know, tons of turmoil. And it seems like that it kind of like bled into your adult relationships. You talked about how it impacted your relationship with, with Chaz and how he would kind of call you out on that. What was the healing process like for you? Was it just as simple as like him calling you out and holding you accountable and being that, that rock for you? Or did you end up having to go to therapy? Like what helped you relearn some of those patterns? Oh, that's such a great question. Well, first, I remember so vividly, he sat me down and said, what do you want to do? Like, we're starting these lives together. Like, what matters to you? You wake up on a day, like, what do you want to be doing? How do you want to spend your time? Like, what kind of legacy do we want to leave? So we were really intentional about 
what mattered, finding meaning, right? Finding a way to contribute. So I think that was really important because then I woke up every day with a purpose and a reason to make good choices. And then I went back to school. I think learning is something I am so passionate about. I did an eating psychology course with Mark David, highly recommend it. If anyone has eating challenges, even just like, they don't have to be like eating disordered, but like overeating, just binge eating, just any of just like around the psychology of eating, uh, that, really helped me a lot. And then I went to school and got a master's and then I'm, I'm getting my doctorate right now. So I think for myself, I need a purpose. I need meaning. I need a reason. I need to be growing. I need to be challenged. And when I put all of those things into my life, it isn't hard for me to stay on track after that. So, and I did do therapy. I am so grateful for therapy. All through high school, I was in therapy. I still have a life coach that I work with to this day. I just started doing somatic therapy. I mean, I do yoga regularly. I meditate every single day. This isn't just a, I decided to be better. And I'm constantly questioning the narrative in my mind, right? Every single day, you know, I have thoughts and I realize my thoughts aren't always the truth. And so just a lot of untangling old unconscious patterns, just, I mean, still to this day, every single day, I'm just kind of commitment to that. But yeah, I highly recommend therapy. I will probably have someone in some form of like a, a life coach in my life forever. That's awesome. And, and once again, like, thanks for sharing all that and being open. And it, I'm glad that you were able to find something that worked for you to help you unlearn some of these unhealthy patterns that have been created because of your childhood and everything else that came along with that. I want to get in now into like the health and nutrition aspect of things, because you talked about you took this psychology of eating course, and that really opened up your eyes to certain things. And a lot of people, they struggle with whether they have a, a disordered eating pattern or not, they have a hard time like eating less processed foods and moving more towards whole foods. What was that process like for you? Like, how did you go from eating, you know, mostly ultra processed foods to, to making that switch and eating more whole foods? Yeah. Well, I think, right, when your hair's on fire, it's a lot easier to make those changes, right? So I was living a life that was just clearly not sustainable and not getting me where I wanted to be and creating conflict with my husband. And so what we started doing is just shopping at farmer's markets and just, you know, it wasn't all processed foods that went right away. It was just trying to build meals together around whole foods. And then eventually we had our off weekends where we would just kind of eat the foods that we were more accustomed to. And over time, you started to notice how differently you would feel. And that itself, that awareness just kind of created a momentum that made it really, really easy to choose that. But for other people that I work with, you know, I think it's important to get to the reason that you're eating these processed foods. Is it just a habit? Is it something you're avoiding? Is it a symbolic substitution? Is it, for some people I know, like it's like love. It's love that they didn't receive. Some people are avoiding emotions. Some people are just in a habit, in a cycle. And so kind of understanding first and foremost, like when are you eating? Why are you doing it and taking a minute? That's a really powerful practice. The other one I use is a pleasure inventory because a lot of times people are looking to process foods 
as a source of pleasure. And that makes sense, right? Because it's our most readily available form of pleasure. We have to have pleasure. We are wired for it. But a lot of us have become overly dependent on the food source. And so if you make an inventory of the top 10 things that bring you pleasure, no matter what, if you woke up on a Saturday with nothing to do, like what would you do? What brings you, what lights you up? And just have that as a alternative, like a bubble bath or a massage or a great song, a dance party, a hike, phone a friend, and just having those alternatives can make it easy because you can't expect yourself just to go from eating a diet full of processed foods and then just deciding, I'm not gonna do that anymore. You have to replace those behaviors. You have to be curious about those behaviors and you just have to be patient with yourself and know that it will be a process over time. Right. So what I'm hearing you say is it's not just a matter of just saying I'm not going to eat processed foods and I'm just going to start eating whole foods. It's kind of a gradual change to, you know, either slowly eliminating certain things, slowly adding certain things and at the same time, like getting to the emotional reasoning behind why you're eating like certain foods so you can learn, you know, kind of what's going on when you're eating these foods. Am I correct? No one wants to have things taken from them. So even if the first step you take is just, I'm going to have five servings of fruit and vegetables a day. Great. That's going to automatically crowd out a lot of the other things that you're going to do. And then once you have that on autopilot, it's like, okay, I'm going to do hundred grams of protein a day. So then you have these two goals that are about addition rather than subtraction. And it just becomes an automatic thing and you're not feeling deprived. But yeah, it's absolutely something that you will just learn new behaviors and you can also make these like horizontal shifts right something you want something sweet okay we'll make something like cacao with coconut oil or or, you know with some nuts like you can always make a healthier substitution for something that you really really enjoy today the products and you know possibilities are kind of endless there so there's just a lot of ways to skin a cat right (laughs) you can take a lot of paths to get to the same thing but having patience and curiosity making lateral shifts and just understanding yourself being willing to watch yourself to kind of just understand yourself I think that's that's the best first step it's such a good point because it's like nobody wants to have something taken away from them. I think the best thing, like you said, at times can be just like, what can you add into whatever you're eating to make your like dietary pattern like that much healthier or whatever the case may be? Yeah. And there's one thing like protein leverage hypothesis. Have you talked about this? I mean, maybe, but I haven't heard of it put this way. Okay. Yeah. So this is just one of the fastest ways to stop craving processed foods is just to have enough protein right? There's a hypothesis that we're not always just eating for nutrients. We're eating for amino acids specifically, which are the breakdown products of protein. So when we get enough protein, those cravings are overeating. They're kind of, they shut off. It kind of silences those signals because we're getting the amino acids we need. And so just like I said, having a goal to get, you know, 80, 100 grams of protein every single day is a simple way that you'll not only crowd out other foods, but also reduce significantly your desire for them. And also fatty acid deficiency is another reason a lot of people have cravings or just being on a blood sugar roller coaster all day long. And again, bringing in ample high quality protein and high quality fats will will significantly reduce that risk. You got to get that protein in and you got to get the healthy fats in for sure. So you're in your mid to late 20s and you're making all these changes. You know, you and your husband are now like kind of working together to transform your health and transform your relationship with food and your relationship between yourselves. How did that inspire you to then start Paleo Valley and and Wild Pastures? Like what was the trajectory of that like? I uh, went on a tour with JLo, I mentioned, around the world. And it was for seven months. And I love Tracy Anderson, right? 
but I had recently started to feel better than ever. When I switched to Whole Foods, I was like, wow, I don't break down at night and I have energy and I'm just a more stable, clear person. And so when I went on this tour, not being able to have access, we were literally in a different country every day. I think we saw 50 different countries and I didn't have access to the kinds of foods that I wanted all the time because it was just our lives were a little bit unpredictable. And so when I came back to the States, I realized I had become really, really passionate about not only knowing how to be fit, but how to be well and then how to share that. And I realized we needed to create products because I wanted to live a life outside my kitchen and I just didn't have the products that were compatible with that. So that was Paleo Valley. We went with meat sticks because <laughs> protein, I realized the really important power of protein and the fact that most of them had ingredients. When Chaz brought me some beef sticks over to Paris, they were grass-fed and everything, but they still ended up making my stomach feel awful. I dug into some research and found ingredients that I wanted to kind of leave out, encapsulated citric acid specifically. So we started with the meat sticks, and then it just kind of grew from there. We had a warm reception, and, and while pastures came from when my son was born, when our son was born, we had these relationships with farmers who were teaching us about the nuances of agriculture, right? And a new emerging type of agriculture that's actually an old form of agriculture called regenerative ag. And they were telling us that they really enjoyed this and the potential for it was great and that, that we really needed it, but it was hard to find consumers. And a lot of times consumers were unwilling to pay so much more for the product. So we thought if we can really be creative about how to cut costs, because we had already had this other business that we were learning things from, and just connect consumers directly to regenerative farmers so the farmers could focus on just farming and not marketing themselves, which a lot of them didn't want to do, then we could potentially create a really high quality, affordable product that would be able to be a part in transforming the uh, agriculture sector, because we know there's a lot of problems there. There's so many problems. And I want to dive into this because it's unfortunate that we are here now, but the reality is we are here now. And a lot of people are eating factory farm meat, and that's, that's a whole industry in itself. And I know that regenerative farming is like a big thing now and people are eating more grass fed and grass finished stuff. But I've heard like the other side of the equation with that is that, and again, I'm, I'm not an expert in this, but just what I've heard is that if you just switch solely to regenerative farming and we just got rid of like factory farming, that we would have a problem like feeding people with the amount of meat that people eat today and that would require much more land, much more cattle. Like what are your thoughts on all that? So for this docu-series we're creating, I've gotten to interview a lot of experts about that specifically. Diana Rogers breaks this down in her book. If we use land more creatively and use more kind of like integrated farms, we could, according to her calculations, still have the same amount of cattle in a, a more regenerative grass feeding system. Uh, Dr. Alan Williams says something similar, right? That the potential is there, but I don't know how realistic that is, right? And I am kind of an advocate for agriculture across the board. I think a conventional system, we need a lot of change, obviously, but that it will probably at the end of the day be a hybrid, right? We will just have conventional farmers upgrade their practices. I just talked to Dr. Frank Mitlerner. He has a lot of ways he's working at UC Davis to, you know, put covers over lagoons and trap that methane and turn it into energy and all these things. But Ideally, I think at the end of the day, we still need to really prioritize regenerative agriculture because that is the system that has sustained us, right? And we have degraded our land to a point where we have to make a change. Otherwise, it's a scary place that we're heading. And so I think it's not gonna be an overnight switch, but as long as we can create a demand and an awareness around the benefits of regenerative agriculture, that is ultimately, I think, the direction that we need to go. But yes, I don't wanna demonize 
all conventional farmers. We started this method of agriculture because we were worried about being able to feed the population. And we had all these new technologies and we tried that experiment. It started with good intentions, but I think we have to understand that we're still degrading our land. We're still using antibiotics. 70% of the antibiotics used worldwide are used in animal agriculture. That's leading to antibiotic resistance. That's very troubling. We have additives like rectopamine that are banned in most countries still being used here. And then we have the social impact, right? We have four major huge companies kind of controlling at least the processing in the animal sector. And when you take that community level kind of involvement, you lose food sovereignty, you lose accountability, there's a social impact, rural communities are being degraded. And so, yes, I think there's a lot of ways we can do it. It's going to be a hybrid. We're gonna need all types of animal agriculture to improve what they're doing currently. But ultimately I do think regenerative agriculture is the way that we need to go. Yeah, I think it's definitely, it seems like a way to like move forward. But like you said, like we have to be also realistic in that like we have this conventional system that's here now that's not going to go away anytime soon. So what are some steps we can take like in the right direction to try to have this hybrid model? Like you said, I think one of the reasons that regenerative agriculture has become more popular, I guess, I mean, as of late, I would say within the last decade or so, is because grass-fed, grass-finished animal products seem to be healthier for people. But I often think sometimes people might just completely steer away from eating certain animal products because they're not grass-fed and they can't afford to eat you know, grass-fed because it's, I mean, I'm not going to lie, like it's expensive, right? especially now. So what advice do you have for somebody who maybe they can't afford to eat grass-fed, grass-finished animal products, but they still want to make sure that they're, you know, eating quality protein from animals? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I've said this before, I'm, I'm definitely conventional meat over donuts any day, right? I think, yeah, just getting to whole food diet is like one of the biggest levers you could ever pull. And then when you have the resources then on the access, then you can go and consume regenerative meats. And I do think there are health benefits. We're actually studying them. But this is exactly why we created Wild Pastures, right? We need high quality meats that not only improve in human health, but environmental health to be affordable. And so that's what we've done with our model. That was our huge light bulb moment was like, this shouldn't be an elitist thing, right? That only certain people can afford really high quality food. Everybody should be able to do this. And so that's what we've done with our company. Another way you can do it is just really think locally, right? You can meet farmers, cut out the middlemen, learn about their practices and buy directly from the people around you because that is going to be a far less expensive way to do it. And a lot of times, some of these farmers who are maybe not certified organic or, you know, maybe not grass fed, they're not using the chemicals and the additives. And, you know, if you inquire about their practices and just get involved locally, you'll find a lot of people are are doing really good things depending on where you are, of course. But yeah, acting locally, trying wild pastures and just knowing you're doing what you can and prioritizing whole foods is the most important thing, right? Conventional meat can still be a part of your diet and you can still move the needle. But if you can afford it and you have access, then regenerative meats are definitely a great way to go. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Because I think sometimes like the conventional stuff gets completely demonized and it just steers people away from like eating, you know, any kind of animal products at all, if that's like what they're trying to include in their diet. Let's just say that you have somebody who's kind of in between. Let's just say you have somebody that 
is currently like eating conventional animal products, but maybe they want to splurge like once or twice a week and try something that's grass fed or grass finished. Like where might it be worth it for them? Is it beef, chicken, pork? Like where do you see the best value? Okay. So lots of thoughts there. I'm actually studying regeneratively raised beef and the changes in fatty acid profile and grain fed, and then those that are fed in a more regenerative system. So I'm, I'm looking at fatty acids specifically. Fatty acids do change, right? And we hear a lot that, oh, well, the absolute amount of fatty acids isn't large, so it doesn't matter. But there are also trials showing that grass-fed beef raises levels of serum omega-3 fatty acids, for example, more appreciably than would conventional beef. So even though the amount is small, the effect can be larger than anticipated, okay? So omega-3 fatty acids, you can get them from beef. There's actually a recent paper, I think Hannah Davis was the author, showing that it could be a significant source of your omega-3 fatty acids, especially if you're not someone who eats fish. So that's beef. And also phytonutrients, Dr. Van Vliet, are seeing phytonutrients. So hundreds of different compounds change depending on how that animal is raised. Now, when we look at a nutrition label today, we don't see those phytochemicals because we don't fully yet understand them. But there's research to suggest, you know, a number of benefits in terms of anti-inflammatory cancer, all of these things, lots of different awesome stuff. There's also some really interesting research around satiety and the fact that these different compounds can make us feel satiated. So that being said, I think the differences do matter in beef, right? But they probably don't matter as much as chicken and pork because, and eggs and dairy. Now those nutrient levels change a lot. Cows are really interesting because they can take their food and they'll convert it, the rumen or the microbes in their rumen will biohydrogenate and create a more uniform fatty acid profile. Pigs and chickens are monogastric. They have one stomach, so they don't convert it. And so they end up when they're grain fed, which they often are with higher levels of omega-6 fatty acids and lower levels of antioxidants and vitamin A and vitamin E and vitamin D, especially if they're not outside. And so honestly, I do think that pork prioritizing pork and chicken and eggs. And if you're a dairy eater, dairy is really important, maybe more important than beef. But I still think that beef can offer additional benefits from systems that are using grass-based or regenerative type systems. That's interesting. Cause I've often personally done the opposite. I've been like, well, I'll just get like my chicken and whatever and pay like, I mean, it used to be like $2 a pound for chicken breast if you bought like the bigger pack. And then I would like just splurge on like the grass fed, like fillets or beet ground beef or whatever, but I'll definitely try to switch it up and incorporate like grass fed poultry products. Yeah. And I mean, it just depends on, you know, also your taste preferences are important too. There's nothing like an amazing grass-fed steak. I can, t I can tell you that. And so the flavor profile is very different. But yeah, when it comes to the largest numbers of nutrients changing, I think, yeah, I think eggs and chicken and pork. It's funny. I was eating lunch at a local grocery store like years ago with my grandparents and I was, you know, explaining to them about like the difference in certain types of farming and how like the size of some of these like chickens you will see like in the grocery store, you see like an organic, like grass fed, like chicken versus like a conventional one. And it's like, like the breasts are like five times the size or something like that. And I would show it to them like, look, they're like pumping this thing full of whatever. And this one is kind of more like naturally raised. And since then they haven't eaten like conventional chicken. They've only eaten because I think I just put an image in their mind. I don't know if it was the health benefits or what, but I think I just put an image into their mind of like, that's disgusting. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I love that you did that. And yeah, sometimes they have like less than a space of a piece of paper to live. And we have, we're working with chicken producers who actually, there's like very 
small numbers of genetics now in chicken production, right? Because they find these birds that grow quickly, you know, they're more efficient. But what's happening is there's such a small amount of different genetics, it makes us very vulnerable. And so they're kind of finding these heirloom genetic types and trying to, again, expand that genetic diversity that will create less vulnerability in the whole system. But yeah, and, and also just so much greenwashing, right? When you look at like cage-free, free range, a lot of times people think this means they're out on pasture. A lot of times they're still in a warehouse and they just might have access. So yes, great. I'm glad that you painted that picture because I think a lot of people see that kind of treatment and just the problems and it does change their behavior dramatically. Yeah. I mean, I think once you see something, like it's hard to unsee it, right? That's why when sometimes like a lot of people, they, they'll see a documentary on something, right? And they'll be like, I just can't unsee that. Like I'm not eating that ever again. <laughs> I'm not doing that ever again. I just can't unsee it. And I think, you know, that can happen and that can make some lasting changes in people's lives. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk more about gut health because I know that you had a lot of gut issues like we've talked about earlier on in your life and you've healed that and you've we've worked to have a healthier gut microbiome. If there were like three non-negotiables in your life that you do on a regular basis when it comes to some habits, when it comes to your food, what are those things as far as optimizing your gut health? Ooh, that's a good one. So the first one is I do it every day and it's a green shake. And it's just, I have tons of leafy greens and cucumbers and ginger and lemon, and I just blend it all up and sometimes like an egg yolk, but I try and get, you know, like four servings of vegetables, leafy greens in particular a day. So I do that. I also have at least one fermented food every single day. And then I also do spices. So people are so underrated, but in terms of like your gut health, they can improve your ability to break down your food. They can reduce inflammation. Turmeric has actually been shown to help beneficial bacteria grow and kind of kill off beneficial or you know harmful bacteria. And so spices, using more of them, taking them in capsule form. I'm drinking a, a golden milk actually right now, and then my green shake, and then a fermented food every day. They actually did a recent trial where they looked at fermented food versus just fiber, and they found that fermented foods were actually able to reduce inflammation more potently. And so, and then last one, if I had to, I drink bone broth every single day in some form. So I guess there's four. Speaking of bone broth, I've been drinking the bone broth, like a chocolate bone broth protein from Paleo Valley for a little while now. And it's like amazing. Like I like was kind of like hesitant at first when I saw it, I was like, I don't know, like bone broth and chocolate, like, but it's delicious. <laughs> it is so good. <laughs> oh, I know. I want to tell you a little recipe that Shauna actually shared with me that has like been making my whole day. So what you do is you take that bone broth, you use macadamia nut milk, and then you add clove, ginger, turmeric cinnamon and a little sea salt it is wow and you can also add i've been adding a little extra virgin olive oil or coconut oil you can't actually taste the extra virgin olive oil if you, you do a small enough amount but it is fantastic mm. i'll have to try that that sounds absolutely delicious i just typically will just throw it in a, a scoop of it in a smoothie or i know like you can also like you can make it hot i think as well Oh yeah. Which I haven't, which I haven't tried just because I haven't gotten there where I'm like, all right, chocolate, hot brome broth. I haven't gotten there yet. Maybe I will. Um, oh, it was so good. <laughs> it, was, it was funny, funny story around that. So my roommate was making some rice and was looking for bone broth. I was like, Hey, I thought this was actual bone broth, but I accidentally put like a scoop of your protein powder in the rice. So I don't know if you want the chocolate rice. <laughs> and I was like, I, 
I'm like, I was like, how did you mix those two things up? I'm like hyper confused, but I, again, I'm not there where I can eat chocolate bone, bone broth rice. Uh, sorry, Autumn, I'm just not there yet. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty dicey, but uh, <laughs> you never know, right? You never know. I had someone dipping a beef stick in peanut butter the other day, which I thought, and my husband swears by it. So if we're talking about weird combinations, he thinks it's amazing. So it could be one of those things too. I don't know. I'll have to try that because I've put peanut butter on eggs before and I really enjoy it. People like thought I was disgusting. Yeah. Try and dip one of our beefs. I'm telling you, he loves it. I haven't gotten there yet, but maybe one day. <laughs> I want to go back to something you said about turmeric because that's often like a buzzword when it comes to spices. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I'm putting like a little turmeric in my food to like help with inflammation and stuff like that. Do you think there's benefit to just sprinkling some turmeric on the food or does there have to be a set dosage for people to see benefits? It just depends on who you are, right? I just had this fascinating conversation with a guy named Bharat Agarwal, and he wrote, I mean, he did a lot of this research around turmeric in the MD Anderson Cancer Center. And he said, and this is just a quote from him, that he didn't, he couldn't find a cancer that turmeric couldn't kill, which is interesting. And I'd ask him, well, what's the dose? What, what do you think? How much? And he said, that just depends on who you are. It's going to depend on how much you need, your health status, and there's no toxic dose, right? So I think, yes, sprinkle it on your food if you want to, if that's a place that you feel good about starting. But then you can also do something like a golden milk, right? That's like an easy thing you can do every day. There's turmeric supplements. So yeah, but I often double the uh, amount of spices in a recipe because I think, I really do think that spices are some of our most underrated medicines in our diet today. But yeah, I think I think you can get benefits, probably. You probably want to make it more of a regular thing. I think people in India have around a, teaspoon a day, something like that. And they do seem to have lower cancer rates, but they also have lower, I think like they live less long. So I don't know. I think the jury's still out there, but yes, I think any amount could definitely be a step in the right direction. Awesome. I think you're right in that. Yeah. It's not going to hurt to include, you know, certain spices in your food, not just for health benefits, but also for taste, right? Like I think like I was the guy who just used to boil chicken and that would be it. And I would just eat it and, <laughs> and, and dip it in ketchup. And that would be like my meal. I used to do that too. <laughs> yeah. So it. But now that I've learned to like cook and I've learned to like get a handle on like what spices go with what types of meats and what types of vegetables and stuff like that. Like I've really enjoyed like continuing to grow and evolve as not only as a cook, but as somebody who eats food to make sure that it's, it's actually tasting really good as well. Well, Autumn, this has been awesome. And I feel like we could spend days talking to each other about all this stuff because it seems like we're both so passionate about it. But I wanted to thank you once again for coming on the show, for being so vulnerable, for being so honest and open about your story and about what you've gone through and how that all became a catalyst for you to completely transform your life and to now you know be able to help other people. So I just wanted to thank you for coming on. Well, thanks, Doug. Yeah, you, your questions were amazing and you've just provided such a safe space for me. So I appreciate you and all the work you're doing and just thanks for letting me be here. Yeah, you're welcome. And I'm glad that I'm glad that you came on once again. And I think so many people are going to get a lot of value out of this conversation um, for many reasons. So if people want to connect with you, they want to learn more about Paleo Valley or Wild Pastures, where's the best place to do that? Yeah, just go to wildpastures.com, paleovalley.com. You can reach out to me, autumn at paleovalley.com. I reach out to everybody who ever emails me. And then we also have a burger company, Wild Pastures Burger Company, burgerco.com. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. 
maybe it was something that really hit home with you as far as Autumn talking about her childhood and everything that she had to go through. Maybe it was something she talked about as far as like some of the destructive behavior that happened when she was younger. Maybe it was something that she talked about and shared when it came to like unlearning some unhealthy patterns and, you know, having her husband like be that rock for her while they grew together. And he helped her kind of become a better version of herself. Maybe it was something she said as far as food or regenerative agriculture or what she's built with Paleo Valley or Wild Pastures, whatever the takeaway was, make sure to tag Autumn and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. We'll see you next time.